I think that the humanities and the arts only become more important in the light of the development of AI. Um, because AI is a tool, and as a tool, we need the humanities to tame it, to understand how it can actually be a huge benefit to society and, and not a threat. Hi, I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. We want to know what happens if, in the future, everything breaks humanity's way. We're speaking with visionaries in many fields, from art to geopolitics and from healthcare to education. These conversations showcase another kind of guest. Whether it's Inflections Pi or OpenAI's ChatGPT, each episode will use AI to enhance and advance our discussion. In each episode, we seek out the brightest version of the future and learn what it'll take to get there. This is possible. AI is enabling people to reconfigure the way we create and experience visual art. From generative AI that produces digital images in seconds to AI-powered tools that allow artists to experiment with new styles and techniques, the possibilities are endless. When wielded correctly, humans could use AI to expand the art world as it allows anyone with an internet connection to express themselves through art. But there are many unanswered questions. How can an artist give or decline permission for their work to be remixed and reconfigured via AI art generators? Who does the AI-generated image belong to? Beyond issues of copyright and ownership, can AI even create art that is meaningful? Furthermore, can AI actually be creative? Or is that power innately and uniquely human? AI-generated art is becoming increasingly ubiquitous. Earlier this year, the world's first AI art award was given at the Ballarat International Photo Biennale, an international photography festival. It's prompting more conversations than ever about what is and isn't art and whether AI is a tool or a threat to artists. That's why we're talking to today's guest. She has a decade-spanning career challenging the intrinsic values of art and exploring the relationship between the physical and the digital. Sarah Z is a celebrated American contemporary artist who is known for her unique installations and sculptures that are often made from everyday objects and materials. Sarah has had many exhibitions in prestigious galleries and museums around the world, and she represented the United States at the Venice Biennale in 2013. Her exhibition, Time Lapse, just closed at the Guggenheim Museum in New York. We sat down and talked to Sarah about AI and art. And what I loved most about hearing from Sarah was there's so much discussion that's about, well, what if the AI art generators are taking my art, mashing them up, and then giving them to someone else and someone else is using them? And we we asked her about that. And, you know, she said specifically that this was her opinion alone, but that that was fantastic to her because she puts her art in the world for people to think about it, remix it, recreate it, and have a conversation back. So she wants to know what people are doing with her art. And she knows that it's not hers. She's putting the art out in the world so that other people can have those experiences. And that in turn will just inspire her to do more exciting and conversation creating things. Yeah, and kind of not surprising for someone who's creative, who is kind of focused on the human 
experience of space and time and memory and presence, that she looks at all of this as a possibility for magnifying what is meaningful about human life. Here's our conversation with Sarah Z. So uh, recently, I had the pleasure and honor of listening to a talk of yours, um, and then going, you know, in the Guggenheim, and then going to see the um, the installation at the top floor. And apparently, the head of security told you that visitors are taking longer to go through your exhibition than any other he's worked on. What's your reaction to that? I mean, that's my favorite favorite comment I could get, really. You know, I mean, I think uh, any exhibition is an experiment, an experiment of in time and place and with audience. And you spend all this time making a work and there's this amazing moment. Um, you know, I think all of us have this when we create something and then we introduce it to the public and you just see it's always an experiment of how they're going to interact. And that's really what makes the work. Um, so, you know, having people slow down, pay attention, be in the moment, look, like really spend time looking is always my goal. I'm always interested in how you can change a museum space from being a place where you walk in and something's on a mantelpiece or, you know, on a frame and it says it's important, you should know why, figure it out, to a place where you're really like discovering, you're in the moment of, um, you know, asking questions, of uh, uh, remembering things, of recall, of, you know, creating your own narratives that takes the time to really explore. And it's a process of discovery um, and you're seeing things that way, not being told. So that that's sort of evidence of that to me. And I love that. So it's really the best compliment I could get. I mean, it was so fun as a, as a lifelong New Yorker, uh, being in the Guggenheim and knowing the person who had created the installation. Um, I just had a blast. So thank you uh, for allowing us to come to that. But in addition to me, you, of course, have another very important aria in your life, your youngest daughter. Um, and I'm also, you know, a New York parent. And one of the reasons I think anyone uh, is a New York parent is because they want their kids to engage in the sort of culture that we have all around us. What is the best way that you have found to engage your kids in New York museums, appreciate the museums? Was that hard? Was that easy? How do you install that uh, culture in your kids? You know, it's interesting. I had a um, uh, a friend who is is in their 20s. Just, I, this is I'm a little bit veering away, but someone said this to me just the other day, um, that, that a friend who was in their 20s who was, was, felt very lonely in L.A., and they'd come to New York and they didn't have any friends, and they and they started by going to the museums. And there's something about being in a museum where you have a, a relationship with an object that it really talks to you about what it is to be human. I think that when you when you actually connect with um, a creative, uh, you know, something that's you know creatively made by another human being, whether it's you know in ancient Egypt or you know your peer in a contemporary art, you know, way, you know, in, in the moment or in history, and you have a moment where you connect with humanity, through an object, through an image, um, it ha you have this kind of feeling of not being alone. And it doesn't actually have to be with a person. So museums are these incredible places where I think you connect with humans over time. And being in a space in New York, what's one of the things I do love about New York is the museums are packed. And so you're having this individual experience with objects, but you feel like everyone around you is too. So it becomes communal. So it's this moment of a live interaction with a physical object that is also communal. That, and I think that's something with, uh, with you know, so much being, um, you know, not time-based, 
you know, my daughter, speaking of Aria, my daughter, I remember the first time we took a JetBlue flight and there was actual television. She was like trying to change it. She's like, why, why is this on, you know, why is it? Because it was actual television. We hadn't had television. We only watched things, you know, so she could always speed up or go backwards or she had no idea that there was actual broadcast television. Um, and I think that, I think in that context, actually the things like, you know, sports events or like Emmys are these amazing moments where we feel like everyone else is watching this at the same time. And we have so few things like that. So I think, I think that museums and art objects can function that way. Um, and I think I just with children, I think that, um, you know, one of the most important things for us to do um, as humans in this country in particular is to make museums totally open, totally accessible to everyone. Um, and because I think that experience is so amazing and um, what we need to make it is less rarefied. We need to make it free. We need to make the doors open. We need to un un like let people know that you can walk in, uh, you know, the Guggenheim, I'm sure a huge, 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 probably majority of the city who people live in the city do not know that you can enter it, you know, don't know like how to do that. And that's, that's really what needs to change. School groups need to go there. Educational groups need to go there. So you really grow up, um, you know, knowing that that's part of your, part of your public, part of your culture, part of your everyday. I love what you say about accessibility, and I think especially using sort of everyday objects. Like the way I feel about museums is the way I feel about gyms is that they can be intimidating. If you've never been in one, they seem elitist. You have to pay lots of money. You're like, I'm not physically fit enough. I don't understand art well enough. Sort of, I can't go inside. So I hate gyms. I hate gyms, by the way. I hate gyms. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm allowed in. I just can't stand them. <laughs> You, you want to make sure people don't say the same thing about museums that, you know, you're a 10 year old kid. And to your point, like, yeah, you're welcome. Oh, you don't you don't you don't have to interpret this my way. You can interpret it your way. And I feel like your art like toes the line between the physical and the digital between chaos and order. Like what what about those dichotomies is interesting to you? Do they have more in common than you realize? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, for me, but I'm interested in hearing what you guys think about this. I mean, the digital is physical. It's not a non-physical thing. This is a crazy, weird dichotomy that people have created. The digital, you know, it's light, like what we're experiencing, and it's light, it's pixels, it's this screen, you know, it's this, you know, it's like, it's, uh, it, it has, it's organic, it burps, it messes up, it breaks, you know, we know we want to throw our, like our phones across the wall, like once a week, because they're not behaving, you know, so, um, and anything outside your eyes is physical, right? It's a physical thing, like the imaginary, and oh, we have an entire interior world that is not, that is in our heads, right? And that, but everything that's outside our eyes is physical. So the digital is physical. So what I am playing around with a lot um, is making the digital feel more physical. So like making it gritty, making it disappear, making it feel like it's suffering or dying or appear, you know, appearing strong or appearing soft so that you, you know, falling apart. So you see its pieces. So in, in the Guggenheim, these images that float around, you know, in the, in broad daylight, you know, that, that trace the space. So you're seeing the digital merge with the real world in this way that I think we're doing anyways. So it's like playing, it's kind of mimicking this, the way our minds are working, I think, where we see an image on our hand, we see an image on the screen, we see a real person, and that's all being blended in this way. Um, and I'm interested in how, you know, how that affects how we remember things, how we care about things, how we fall in love, how we feel lost, you know, it, because it's real, it's already here. But this also gives a great lens into one of the things we cover on Possible a lot, which is AI. 
And so, you know, obviously um, this blend between, you know, bits and atoms where they intersect and what the dance is between them, you know, how does, how does this change the idea maybe of what is an art object and what intrinsic value objects have? Does, does, does the AI, you know, change this or evolve this in some way? Uh, a very smart friend of mine said to me, you know, what? I, I loved your show. You know what I loved about your show? He said it was it was evidence that you know, AI is not going to take over, you know, just because he said an AI could never make this. And he said, so that's, you know, that's the real question. I mean, we, you know, I think that the humanities and the arts only become more important in the light of the, the development of AI um, because AI is a tool. It's not a creature. And, and as a tool, we need the humanities to tame it. Um, and to guide it and to use it in the way that not tame maybe to, you know, to, to understand how it can actually be a huge benefit to society and, and not a threat. Um, and so that's that I think is something that um, the, the, you know, the tech and the humanity worlds need to need to be more, uh, more in conversation, I think. And it was interesting because I just dropped my, uh, drop, you know, I have a daughter in college and there was a it was an intro for the parents to when you dropped your freshman off and the it said it was a bunch of professors who said why I teach and there was a there was a guy who's in computer science and he said you know actually um, I don't care if all of the papers are written in, in chat um, and a lot of kids are doing that it's like completely in some classes are totally allowed um, and he said because I think actually all most of these classes won't be taught anymore anyways because you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let, like, I mean, a lot of these STEM classes will become irrelevant as actually it will only need the humanities classes because those are the classes that chat won't be able to cover. So I, that was a kind of interesting radical statement. Fundamentally, yes, they'll still study both. I completely, 10,000% agree with your thing that it's important to bring the humanist in because much more than, you know, other technologies, this one, you know, affects how we have knowledge, how we, we, we compose ourselves as individuals and societies, how we communicate. It's a language amplifier. And given all of that, it's much more critical than ever. And to have the humanists, as it were, in the loop, not as a, this is bad, stop the AI, which is like, no, that's not going to work out that way. But to say, how do we make it so that it helps us amplify our humanity, be better, um, what are the ethical considerations? What are the humanist considerations? What are the artistic implications? I think that's the the, the thing. But we'll still have computer science because, by the way, it's just that within a couple of years, the most common programming language is going to be English. Natural language. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, sp sort of speaking more on the AI thread is like it, people are hypothesizing that like one of the great things about AI is that it democratizes art. Like anyone can be an artist with AI. Like, do you agree? You might say, like, why do we need AI for everyone to be an artist? Like, how do you see that? I mean, I entirely disagree. I mean, first of all, I think at, at the top of any field, creativity is always, is always, you know, when you look at the most interesting things that are happening in any field, creativity is the, is the key ingredient to making it the top of that field. So, um, you know, creativity is not just part of the arts. It's actually the superpower of anything you do. Um, and so, but I think there are interesting ideas about like the predictive that I actually have questions for you. I mean, I think AI's knowledge base is about making predictions mostly. Is that correct? Well, it's, um, predictions is correct. And it's actually more of a kind of a reasoning engine than a knowledge base. It happens to have a lot of knowledge in it as part of the, how the reasoning engine is constructed. 
Um, and part of the reasoning engine is prediction because it's a little bit like what's the next thing. And actually, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about writing about, in a sense, part of what we have with these large language models is we have a, a kind of a reasoning creative engine that is based off the corpus of our language. And that's the reason I say reasoning engine more than uh, like certainly not a knowledge base. Like that's that's what most people don't understand. And they think when they're using, you know, Pi or ChatGPT, it's like, you know, um, you know, give me Sarah Z's biography. And I'm like, okay. Then of course it looks like it's a knowledge engine versus versus a, you know, what would happen if like what would Reed Hoffman's like art look like if he was an artist? Right. Much interesting question. Yeah. So that's I mean, I think two of the things that are, you know, when you bring up the question as a as as a visual artist with uh, creativity is, you know, your your whole purpose is not to be predictable. So the predictive uh, that the idea that that, uh, you know, there's a there's an element of reasoning that's based on the prediction. Like, what can we predict about putting, you know, a conversation between Sarah Z and Reid Hoffman? Like that already is 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 actually derivative. And so the idea of an artwork being derivative in my field is a huge negative, right? Like the derivative and, and it always, and that's not to say that it isn't always derivative because it is, right? We're working from a history where even an artist is saying, oh, I thought about Rauschenberg. Oh, I thought about Ava Hess. Oh, I thought about, you know, Yoyoi Kusama, whoever you want to say. And those people are, and if you have an artist who doesn't know that they're, that the, that, you know, if there's even an artist who wants to do a show at the Guggenheim and comes there and makes a whole bunch of paintings that look exactly like Andy Warhol, you're going to say, you're derivative, right? You're derivative. So, but, so, but you also need to know as a student at a certain point, you can be a great artist. Like when, when, when I teach graduate students, every single student comes in, they are great artists. What, what they need to do is change the game by making something entirely new that we haven't seen. Is that based on, on past knowledge? Absolutely. But the first thing you probably talk to them about is what's derivative about their work. They, I think it's been fought over between whether it's Einstein or Picasso, but you know, mediocre artists borrow, great artists steal. But you learn, stealing is about look, being aware of what is derivative and, and creating something new that's unpredictable out of it. When I'm making the Guggenheim, I do think the things that are make it an interesting show are the things that I had no idea were going to happen. So I create all of these systems. And then within that system, I am following the process in this open way where the process starts to tell me what I'm doing. And being in that moment as a human being and reading, reading back from your own process is something that I think those, those moments of discovery that you have, whether it's scientific or whether it's um, creative, those moments I actually think are translated to the viewer. I think he's, the viewer says, wow, how could anyone ever have thought of that? And it's really because of that moment. So that's, that's the thing that I think is, you know, a machine is, who, that's trying to predict and that is using knowledge that's derivative already is going gonna, is gonna, to, I don't know, those are things I think you're, that are going to be hurdles, I would think. Um, but you can tell me because this is not my field. But I have one, I'll add one other thing that I think is interesting. So I did a talk with um, Richard Axel. I don't know if you know him. He's a Nobel Prize winner for um, for discovering how the olfactory works in the brain. He's a neuroscientist, really brilliant person and also a huge art lover. And I, he's a professor at Columbia and I did a talk with him. And he kind of embarrassingly started the talk by saying, I just want you to all know 
upfront. He's very funny too. He just said that this person I'm standing next to me is actually more important than me. And I'm going to tell you why. And he said, because if I hadn't been alive, somebody would have discovered how the olfactory works in the brain. But if she hadn't been alive, the artwork she's making never would have existed. And that's kind of the crux of the issue here, right? And how do you think AI changes this landscape? Because it obviously is, it unlocks a lot more potential creativity because unlike, you know, kind of like the classic thing to be a good artist, you have to have a lot of different kind of physical skills about how you put stuff together. Whereas now, you know, I can kind of think, you know, hey, create a, you know, an image that's like the equivalent of if Albert Einstein was looking on LSD at black holes, you know, through a silver daguerreotype, you know, and da 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 and, and, and I can, if I have visual thinking, which not all human beings do, but if, if one does, one could do something like that. And so, so the, 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 the capabilities of using these tools change the landscape of how art's co constructed. Um, does that change the value of art? Does it change what is art? Does it change what is an artist? So I think a lot of things about that. You said a lot. I think so. I think obviously we're both talking about the same idea. It's a tool. It's a tool. You're using a tool. The, the the driver is your question, and how interesting your question is. And the tool is something to play with, right? And I think if people get confused by that, that's you know they're not. It's the AI is not the driver. You're the driver by asking the more interesting question, right? So that's one part of that question. I think the second question is the part of it is speed. Obviously. The speed at which it can, speed is really interesting here. And I think there's been really interesting art um, created in times of speed. So when you look at like when the train, when trains were created, you know, that changed entirely the way. And, you know, Einstein was really interesting uh, on that front. You know, he made, did the pant, he made patent, he was a, worked in a patent office where they had to create patents for clocks because that's the first time we had to have, we had to all have universal time because when, a train was landing, you know, was arriving in Venice and then going to Rome. Actually, noon didn't exist in both places, so they had to create universal time. So this, but speed of information during that time changed radically, right? When the airplane was created. And when you look at those periods in art history, they're really interesting artworks about speed and how that changed, how we perceived ourselves as humans in the world. That didn't mean that a painting wasn't still as interesting a way to tell you about that, though. So I don't, I don't think, I think that the subject is fascinating and how we process information as humans when we know that it can come to us at that speed and, and what that makes us feel about what it is to be alive on earth is a really interesting question. But I don't think that it makes, you know, the piano go obsolete. I don't think that it makes, you know, a paintbrush, they're not going to go out of business. I mean, in some ways, the opposite. People are like looking for Kodak films. You know, those things become more valuable, right? So I think we, those are very unpredictable. I think that um, I have like 20 other things to say, but I'll go to the authorship. So authorship, I think, is really interesting um, because, you know, images come from high, low, they're manipulated. They're, and th so that's something I'm interested in my work. You know, in the beginning when I started doing video, they said, oh, you're going to be one of those video artists who needs like, the highest level. I love like the high, the low, the the manipulated, the because that's what we're getting. That's that's the language. Like as you said, the, our visual language is is adapting at this incredible rate. Um, you know, younger. You know, the younger you are, the more complex this is. This mixture, this amalgamation of 
um, you know, what kind of images we're getting and how images are replacing our verbal language, obviously, right? We're going back to almost a pictorographic language that we started with. So I think that um, authorship is really interesting, but I think all of these things are medium for fine arts. Um, I don't think they replace, um, you know, the, the, the artwork itself. We're the ones asking the questions. We have to ask the right questions. Um, and, and that's what makes it interesting. And if we ask the wrong questions, it's really not interesting and potentially dangerous. We know that. I mean, it's interesting. I think, again, when people start using AI, they often, they often say that. They often say, well, like, I'm getting junky responses. And it's like, well, you're asking terrible questions. <laughs> um, you know, you need, to be, um, you need to be at that starting point. But so much of the discussion around AI and art has to do with copyright and ownership and, you know, you're stealing my images. And so I sort of can imagine how you would feel, but let me know. Um, if your art was fed into AI and then someone said, you know, can you create a piece in the style of Sarah Z? And rather than commissioning you personally, they used, you know, these sort of AI derivative pieces. And so let's take a look at some AI generated art inspired by your body of work right now. Let me describe this for a minute for those who are listening. These AI images show indoor spaces filled with scaffolding, small screens, and models of planets all cluttered together. You can take a look for yourself in the transcript in the show notes. Oh, yeah, these are cool. I see. I mean, people have sent me these before. I mean, so for me, like, I don't have a problem at all with this. You know, when I first started making... Um, artworks I was you know doing mostly installation when I started showing them publicly it was back in the day in the 90s early 90s where you were not allowed to take pictures of artworks you were not like a guard would come up to you if you had a camera which was let much 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 less likely because people didn't have cameras in their pockets and they would say no you can't take a picture and some artists still do that actually or like you know they don't want their films on for me and I was like I actually said no these are these are you know, installations, their world. I'm really interested in how people photograph them and they will anyways. I feel like it's prohibition with alcohol. It's like, you can't, people are still going to do it. Like, you know, it's, it's a losing battle. And like, these are all really interesting. Like, would I, would I know they weren't my work? A hundred percent. But like, if, if I, if this were a film set for like a sci-fi movie, I'd be like, that's incredible. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with ownership. Um, of of these, I think they're I think they're really interesting. I think copyright will be totally rewritten. I think you know I think I know there's a lot going on um, and there's battles going on. But give it a hundred years, it's going to be in it. the rules will have to change um, because the trading of the trade of images has changed radically in the last. It, it changes every week, um, and when that happens and people use them, you 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 know laws have to follow behavior. So um, and I pers that's my own personal feeling. I mean, I certainly if it's if these are life threatening, if they're, as we know, my husband's an oncologist, if people are dying, if they're being used with warfare, if they're nefarious, like that's a real problem. But if they're being used to create, um, you know, imaginary worlds. Wow, that's that's amazing. Um, so I feel like also my work is just a continuum of everyone else's work anyways. I hope that I'm like talking to, I mean, it sounds like hubris, but I hope I'm talking to Vermeer. I hope I'm talking to Rembrandt. I hope I'm talking to, you know, um, Murasaki. You know, I think those are, that's that's what all artists are doing. And like when I go to the Met and I see, you know, a statue with no head, I have no idea 
who made it, you know, I don't know what it looked like with the head and it still moves me. I don't need to know. So I, I don't think my name is important. Like, I just love that about my, my public art. Like people go through LaGuardia, they go through the subway station. They have no idea who made it. I don't care. Uh, you know, it's an experience. And I don't think, you know, half the artworks we have from, you know, centuries ago, we don't know the names of the artists, but we're still appreciating. We're still talking to them. We're talking to them as humans. Um, so, so that's how I feel. But I know that for some artists, especially people who are in design, I think it's a different, it's a different pro problem because you really are reproducing the exact thing and making money off of it. Um, so there are definitely different um, different realms to this where where people's livelihoods can be ruined, um, and I understand that. But for me, it's, it's a, I'm I'm more interested in really a much larger contribution to a larger conversation. Where if my if my work gets gets you know mashed up, I mean that's a mashup, right? That's interesting to me. That's interesting. Um, you know, I don't post on Instagram, but I have an Instagram account and I, and I hashtag myself. And I love looking at what my work through the eyes of others. And often I find the most beautiful photographs and most beautiful views of my work through other people's that I don't know. And actually have my, I, I go in and I re-photograph their photographs because they find these moments that I haven't found. So, you know, there are, again, many different uses of these tools. You know, I'm not using it to promote my own work. I'm using it as an actual camera to see my work, and it's great. I think your nuance on, look, there's, there's this new tool. It can amplify your humanity. It can be really good. We're always in conversation. It can help conversation, and we just need to be careful about where it has substantive negative impact is exactly right. And I think a little bit of the art versus design is, I think, one interesting possible lens here because, you know, part of the, the thing about replacing artists is, you know, you could hire a human being today to say, you know, look at Sarah's piece and make me another version of it. You couldn't resell it, right? Or you have to really, really clear that it's not Sarah, right, uh, that's doing. And I think art has a lot of that kind of that 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 kind of individual creator part of it, which I think is really good. And I think the design part of it, um, you know, we'll have to sort out how that exactly works, but it could also be around, you know, authentic, you know, the authentic branded thing. But, you know, what are you seeing um, that, that um, is good gestures for how people to look at kind of people using AI to enhance their work to being amplifying themselves to kind of show as opposed to the, you know, because the, the media is usually full of all the negative stuff. What are you seeing on the on the positive side of that? I mean, this idea of like art in the age of mechanical reproduction. So this that was a Walter Benjamin book that talked about like how art, the minute we had mechanical reproduction, we could reproduce things. It changed what the value of art was and, and it questioned it. Pi, could you explain? Walter Benjamin was a German philosopher, cultural critic, and essayist. He was active in the early to mid-20th century and is considered a key figure in the field of critical theory. Benjamin argued that the widespread availability and reproducibility of art in the age of mechanical reproduction undermined the aura of art. He believed that the uniqueness and authenticity of an original work of art, its aura, was a key factor in its perceived value and aesthetic impact. However, mass production made art more accessible to a wider audience, 
and diminished its sense of rarity and uniqueness. As a result, Benjamin argued that art lost its special status as a sacred object and became more of a commodity, a product of industrial culture. This shift, he claimed, had significant implications for how art was perceived and valued. So I think that's subject matter, right? Well, this is a subject matter that's really interesting. So if you are an, a person, like I think, you know, you can only make, I believe that you can only make the art that you make. You know, you can go and say, I really wish I, I could say, I really wish I made like yeah, small watercolors. But if I don't, I can't just, it, it really does come from, you know, having, I do think having to make the work you make, you don't get it, you don't get to choose. So in that way, um, you know, it's a very, very, very unique endeavor. So when something is reproduced or re- reproducibility is part of your subject matter. So, so if that's something you're interested in, like Warhol was very interested in that, right? He made a passion out of that. And his work, you can, there's a, it brings up all those questions about, well, if I have it printed on a mug and I enjoy it, like, is that, what, where's the value, you know? And he, he played with the value of that. So like, we, you know, he took Brillo boxes and he, you know, he signed them and he, he sold them for a hundred dollars and he threw them out there. And now, you know, he played on that. So you could make that the subject of your work, I think, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that, um, I think that there is a difference between a, a, a visual thing a visual thing, whether it's, you know, a painting, an object, digital, I don't care, anything else on your eyes, a, a mu- music, it could be writing, that makes you have this profound moment where you feel connected to humanity over centuries. And that's a very specific kind of art that's very specific. It's not, I'm not, it's not saying it doesn't, de- doesn't deny other kinds of art or other mediums, but it's a very specific endeavor, um, you know, and and I don't think AI will ever replace that. I just don't. It may, it may be really great at like, at, at things that are like driven, like, you know, graphic design. Like, can it make the golden arches of, of a McDonald's? Maybe. But also, the, you know, graphic design is also one of these incredible things where you, you, there's some things that like no one would ever guess would be successful, right? You know, so these things you don't, like, that's what, you know, great, uh, you know, great, advertisers are doing all the time they actually find things that are not obvious and that really like let link on to things so that's the human experiment thing about when you put something out there and you really just don't know you don't know what it's going to be and so if it's predictable or if it's reasonable it's not always going to be the most interesting thing and i think humans are, are really you know they take that they're going to occupy that have you had any kind of um play yet with any of the the kind of AI art tools and is there anything that you discovered that you thought was, that was particularly like, ah, this really opens up, like for example, opens up a concept of time and space, which I know you think about a lot or memory, which I know you also think about a lot. So there's so many, I mean, I get so many offers all the time and um, I have been, you know, it's funny. I remember I was like asked to do, I, so I did do an AR, I did an AR piece um, during COVID because I, I felt like people aren't allowed, they can't get out of their houses. They can't experience these things. I did a piece in Paris um, and it was closed. No one could go see it. So we did an AR piece where that piece came to your, came to your house. Like you held up your, your you, you held up your, your uh, camera and all of a sudden these images were flying around your own house. 
So there's ways in which you can, of course, you know, I think half the shows I see, I think I've seen them virtually, right? You can't remember if you've seen that show or not. I mean, it's it's actively part of seeing artwork, I think, already. But I have been very resistant to diving in because I've felt like I haven't found one where I felt like it was more interesting than the tools. Like the, I, I'm more interested in you going into one of my shows and thinking about oh, what's happening? There's a there's this there's this confusion between whether it's digital or physical, like and having this live moment. And I ha- and I so you know for example in the Guggenheim there's a pendulum that's rocking, and underneath it over the sand there's a video that's that has a random path of a moon. And your eye keeps trying to make the pendulum and the random path meet. Though if you think, when you spend time with it, you realize, okay, there's no relationship. That's a video that's already been pre-programmed. That's a pendulum that has, you know, it has an arm that's making it swing at random. But you can't stop it. Your head keeps trying to make them a shadow of one another, magnetized, talking to each other. And so for me, that was this incredible moment that I'd found actually in a different piece, in a Paris piece, and said, this is great. I'm, I found this. I'm going to bring it in. Is a kind of real-time example of how I feel a lot, where I'm like, did this happen? Did this happen in real time? Is it digital? Is it not? And this is one of my favorite questions to ask um, younger people, and I, 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 I dare any of you to do it. What's a time where you were in your day where you were confused about whether something was digital or physical? And they tell you the most amazing answers. So this one kid said to me, it's, well, it's when I'm going home on the subway and when I go under, under, you know, under the water to go to Brooklyn and I'm reading a book and I think the book's going to go dead. So he's already gone backwards. He's made the physical into the digital and he anticipates it shutting off. And so this is like, this is what, you know, this is the experience of our world. And that is the, every, you know, we are completely digitally dependent. We know that all of us, right? And it's, it's knitted into our worlds, you know, and, and it became cross ages. Like my parents learned how to order groceries because they had to. So COVID accelerated that even more, right? And so we really have to figure out what is that doing to our, to our you know, to the way we communicate and, and put it, you know, and think about it think about it, ask questions about it. So, you know, and I don't even mean this in a negative way. I always think about like uh, the, what I'm about to say. I don't, I don't think of this in a negative way, but it'd be interesting reading, Ari, if you think this is negative. Um, I like to think about different mediums and what they do best. Like what can a sculpture do really well? Like it can deal with gravity. You can deal with your body in space. You understand it. You can go around, you can touch it. Whereas like a photograph, you never get what's on left or right. So it creates this, you know, so our painting, you know, can create deep space, it can make, you put a paint, I put my paintings in my house and they all look bigger. I put a sculpture and I have no space, you know, there are these things that they do. So what I think the digital does for artistically for me more than anything is it creates longing. And this is, a, and I don't mean that in a negative way because longing is a deep human experience that, you know, is, as you can look at like Durer's melancholia. I mean, because the digital always want, I think, always leaves you wanting more. You want to know what it smells like. You want to touch it. You want, you, you want more. You want the full experience and you never, you, you think you have it. It can trick you to have, but you, you're not there. So I think that longing is, and then longing can be great. I do all of my yoga classes digitally. I go on Zoom and I actually love it because I'm private and I don't have to travel. And, and she looks at the screen and she tells me stuff. And so I'm with her and I'm with this group 
around the world in different time. We're doing this thing together. It's the most physical thing I do in my day and actually works out to be a COVID, you know, there's these COVID holdovers that where you're like, actually, I don't want to do this in person. I like this. And you, it's like the last thing I would have thought was in person. So I, and it creates this kind of um, community, but privacy at the same time. Um, so they're really interesting things, I think, that can that come from it, but they're not always what you expect. Um, but I think longing is 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 the is the you know it's the superpower of of of, uh, of the digital, and and we we have longing all the time. It's what it makes you know. Does the does AI have longing? I don't know about that. <laughs> like you know, I mean that that's that's an that's. A, an interesting question. I mean, we, we ask, does it have empathy, but does it long to be something? You know, um, I think probably longing has something to do with the fact that we have an, we have a not, we have knowledge of our own expiration dates so that, you know, and that's something that an AI doesn't have, or you can try and teach it obviously, but like, does it actually feel it in a soulful way? We don't know, right? Can we do that? I mean, those are the endpoints, right? That is the outer, outer edges. So funny. I like I, everything you said resonated with me. I mean, whenever we go in the car with my kids and they don't understand that their laptop can't have Internet because to them, the Internet is nothing because it's everything like they just that doesn't even occur to them. Or I was talking to my husband who um, who's sort of an amateur photographer and he takes these amazing photos. And when he's editing them, I'm like, Chris, you can't edit them to make it look better than it was. And he goes, I'm not. A photograph can't possibly capture the beauty of where we were in person. And he's like, my editing is just trying to capture that beauty because the, you know, the physical and the the digital are always in conversation. Um, and I just I think that's so true. You can't even sort of separate them because, you know, where does one start and the other end? I mean, the photography is completely I mean, in the last 50 years, it's completely turned on its head. You know, when I was when I I did black and white photography you you had a bunch of negatives. You decided which ones were good. You limited an addition and you destroyed the other ones. You know that uh -huh. now there. I think that the photograph is completely disappeared into a moving image. Right, it's gone back. So it started. You know, the photograph created the moving image at at, at Reed Hosman's college, which used to be a farm where they. You know, that's where the first experiments with you know Leland Stanford. Um, and, you know, had a bet that all four, four legs of a horse were in the air um, while they were running. And he hired a photographer to actually go and do the Moybridge, Edward Moybridge, to actually create the system where he was photographing on, on the, the, I wonder exactly, and I think it's still there. There's, the ring is still at, on Stanford, I think, campus. Um, and, and that's where they, that's the really, you know, people think about the first film. The French say, you know, it's a different experiment, but which which is has happening at the same time with birds, um, and uh, Marie was doing that that experiment exactly the same time, was looking at how birds move. So animals, the the, the photography of animals is what created film. But I think we're just gone totally backwards now. Like nobody watches a still image. Always you're always scrolling. You're always you know my like live taking a live image to my thirteen year olds. You never take a still image because a live you can choose like twenty five images. Right. So I, you know, the manipulation of the image, the image is, it's like a painting now. I totally agree with that on your husband. And it's not capturing the moment. That's, a, you know, it doesn't have, you can't see what's over here. It doesn't have peripheral images. That is what the cubists were doing. The cubists were talking about the fact that when you're in space, everything's moving. Your eyes are moving. There's things fluttering. There's, you know, atoms are moving. 
you're in movement yourself. So like to, a still picture is a, is a, a you know, is, is a, a fantasy. So how did then they were talking about how do you make, how do you paint something and then try and paint it from 10 perspectives at the same time to, to talk about that idea that we're all in movement. So to me, it's interesting if AI is the subject and is the tool, but I don't think it's the replacement. I don't think it can compete. What do you think is kind of the, the, the path that you're on right now for what you're elaborating? Like what kinds of themes are you thinking about? What kinds of, of kind of experiences, memory, time and space? You know, how are you, how are you going, you know, which, which way are you sailing and rowing? right now in your kind of experience and mind and creation. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting. I did a, um, a piece that had to happen right after the Guggenheim opened because of COVID, everything piled up and um, it had to happen really quickly. And it's something, there's something really interesting about, um, you know, the limits of time and then making creative decisions that you can't look back on. So I made this piece and um, it was like a, it was like a visual poem. Um, and we, it actually had, a, it actually had a language to it. It's, it's, it, it's, uh, it was an old Victorian station. It just came down. It's going to Italy. Um, this is called metronome. Um, and it was caught between two, uh, passing trains, but I'm trying to explain what it was. I did a really good podcast with this guy, Ben Luke right after it, which I was like, wow, it's so interesting. Cause again, it was like, I, it was, I couldn't even question what it was. It was so on the top of my tongue, you know, on the tip of my tongue, but I'm. I would say um, what was really interesting to me was it is it had language in it, and then I decided the language was too literal and took it out. And you have this sense of of a rhythm, of a refrain, of chapters in this visual way, and it's complete visual overload. There's about five hundred screens all happening at the same time, but they have almost a symphonic quality to them in chapters. And, and it was a really quick decision to say, okay, the narrative gets taken out. There was a voice, there were people speaking and it was taken out. And what was left is this actually really interesting rhythmic visual. Um, and it was, it was, uh, it's a very uh, moving piece. I think it has uh, people also like cry in it and they don't, you don't know why. Um, and I think again, it's the sense of sort of loss of longing um, of fragility, uh, you know, of, uh, the passing of time. Um, you know, someone who was very old said, you know, I'm, I'm 54, so I'm not that young at all, but someone who was in their eighties said, I don't know how you would make this piece because it's a piece that an 80 year old would make. Cause it's, there's so much about she, about, you know, about the end of life in it, she said, but I mean, that's not actually what I was, you know, particularly going for in any way, but it was this idea of fragility of, you know, how fragile life is. So, you know, that it's in, it's somehow threaded into this digital narrative. Um, so it's, that's very, very vague, but I'm interested in, I'm interested in playing with these tools and seeing and really finding, like finding the fragile in them, you know, and then making that moment become a moment for the viewer um, and that they recognize that they're like, wait, I know this experience in my real life. Then I know this sense of confusion or loss or finding. And a part of the, the, the part of the interesting about losing your footing is also then regaining it. Like, where do you, where do you regain and how those breaks in your life are the things that you remember. So I'm interested in how, you know, the, how things become valuable in terms of how they imprint on you and your memory and how they affect how you move forward. 
right? So one of the things that's fascinating to me is if you go see art for me, let's say art, um, you know, I go, let's say to San Francisco, look at a bunch of art and I'm like, oh, I like this. I like this. This I was great. This was interesting. This moved me. This didn't. And then I, I look back at it a month later. And there's like usually like one thing that, and maybe a thing that I didn't think I liked or disturbed me, but one thing that really, like really stayed with me and I'm going to think about it. It's going to change. So you, you have to learn things over a long period. It's sort of what sticks with you over a long period of time is really interesting. So I'm interested in making that little skip in the record that that then imprints and then having people question what is imprinting and what is changing the way they think along the way. So moving to our rapid fire section, is there a movie, song, or book that fills you with optimism for the future? I'm just going to rapid fire. I'm thinking of this. I love this movie, um, Beast of the Southern Wild. And it's just this incredible movie about resilience. Um, uh, and the acting in it is phenomenal. And it's this mix of documentary. And I mean, it's a fiction film, but a lot of the actors were found on site. Um, and it's this, it's about storytelling, memory. There's even more we're talking about photography. Like the cinematography is absolutely beautiful in it. Um, and uh it's it's about humanity, so it's 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 a great movie. Such a good movie. Um, so this next question it c- can be either trivial or or deep, whichever you prefer. Um, but what's a question that you wish people would ask you more often? Interesting. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it on my in the context of my artwork. Um, I love it when people say like it's, it's interesting because people will think, oh, what do you say to someone after you see their work? You know, what do they really want to hear? Um, I do love it when people ha- tell me very specific things that that th- that they saw and affected them. Because part of the thing that I'm trying to do with my work is to have an experience that is so diverse that no two people will have the same experience. So that if I ask you and read, like, what was your favorite thing about the Guggenheim? As just like one little thing, I'm going to rapid fire back. <laughs> um, what is like what? <laughs> what's the one thing that Aria you remember? Like, there's not just one thing that really affected you. To me, it was the perfect meld of the Guggenheim's space with your artwork. So I couldn't imagine the installation elsewhere because I thought the space spoke to your art and then your art spoke back, which was very cool. Yeah, I love that because I was like the real, the one of the real challenges was how do I make a piece that feels totally married to this building where the building made the work and the work made the building? So that's a great answer, but it could be any answer. Okay, read your next. <laughs> I turn the tables. You know, I find that on the time lapse, you know, the kind of thinking about what time meant to meaning um, and kind of how you, how the kind of, it's like the, the kind of the, all of the everyday objects are kind of like how our everyday life and time combines in the meeting. And so I, you know, the fact that your perspective changes as you walk around it, as you look towards the wall, you look towards the, you know, the kind of the, the complex centerpiece desk slash studio slash something, right? You know, exactly what it is. That that experience of time had me reflecting on it. It's beautiful. That's the philosopher in you. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think the reason why I switched that over is because I think people um, often think, you know, they say, what does the work mean? Or they want to know, they want to know the answer from the artist. But I think it's interesting um, to open and say there isn't, you know, it's really about the experience of the viewer. Like that is as important as what the artist means. Was an artist 
you know, you have to assume you're not going to be around when the work is there. And so it's really, you know, the art is created by the viewer. To hear, it's the same thing as looking at Instagram photographs. To, for As an artist, to hear what you pick and what you see is really, is that's, I wish people would tell me more. I think this is the one thing, like I love this one thing because it's always different. People always have a different, you know, perspective in. And that's really what an artwork is. It's a meeting of your mind with my mind through an object or through an experience. Where do you see progress or momentum outside of your industry that inspires you? So I think, you know, I think for me, of course, progress in future always is, resides in children, right? And so I think, you know, I think I do think that generationally, I'm not sure, and I don't want to make generation uh, generalizations, but I work with people through all ages, and I have a 13 year old, so I think that they are they are they're trying to ask the questions about what like how to use these tools in interesting ways, um, and and there there is like a kind of real fresh interest in what their potential is. I think that the, you know, originally there was, there's a, there's sort of a generation right after mine, which is sort of, which rightly feels like, well, this is what you left us with. <laughs> like, you know, the environment, you know, these things. But I think that younger generation is really interesting because like in their early twenties, um, because they are, they're actually very interested in seeing what the potential is, like tearing the thing apart like turning it over and looking at it from all sides. Well, on that note, that this can also be sort of focused on art or much more broad. Um, but can you leave us with a final thought on what you think it's possible to achieve if everything breaks humanity's way, if everything goes right in the next 15 years? And, and what's our first step uh, to, to move in that positive direction? I think culture is our, our, our greatest... Um, it's our, it's what we, it's what we're going to leave if, you know, if we're found by another planet, it's, it's what's going to, it's what's going to be the most interesting thing is going to be, you know, listening to pictures from an exhibition, you know, that's, that's going to be our, our stamp of time. Uh, you know, it's going to be looking at a Georgia O'Keeffe, you know, those are the things that are going to be our time capsule. Um, and so I think, you know, even if, and that, I guess I'm talking about if everything doesn't go our way and there's just this little time capsule left, like that's what we want to, that's what we want to have in it, I think. So to me, you know, um, this idea that art is sustenance, that art is, is an expression of what it is to be alive on earth, um, for that to be sort of what we, I'm doing it in the opposite. I'm saying that's what remains. But if we could make that be a language and, and thread that language more deeply in, into the, the future culture that we're creating, I think that would be um, a great way to go. Possible is produced by Wonder Media Network, hosted by Ari Finger and me, Reid Hoffman. Our showrunner is Sean Young. Possible is produced by Edie Allard, Sarah Schleed, and Paloma Moreno Jimenez. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer and editor. Special thanks to Katie Sanders, Surya Yalamanchili, Saida Sepieva, Ian Ellis, Greg Beato, and Ben Rellis. And a big thank you to Kristen Graham and Little Monster Media Company. 